When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All you heroes, hawks, heralds, crows, pirates, and wardens, welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we unpack, discuss, and galaxy brain about all the lore behind the Dragon Age series. We are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe, from character deep dives to exalted marches and elven gods. We will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello and welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast, where we talk about Dragon Age and its lore. I am one of your hosts, Austin, also known as Teacup. I am here for the colorful commentary, but if you want the lore facts, you gotta go to my co-host. And that's me, I'm Shelby or SheCup. And so today we are back on our Conflicts of Thetis, and we're here with a special guest. And so we have with us uh, Psych88 from the MCU Lorecast. Hello, I'm glad to be back. Um, but you did forget Austin Sykes' other podcast is the Blue Shift podcast, yeah. so also very important. Uh, I appreciate that. But yes, yeah, no problem. So we are talking about the Mage Templar War today. It's a really big topic. We've talked around it multiple times on the show, but today we're diving in with full force. So let's just get started since it's such a big topic. And um, also, you too, feel free to interrupt me, jump in at any time. So the Mage Templar War is kind of like, it's kind of an acronym. It's not, or actually acronym is not the right word. It's like a fan-made term. That's not really the term in game. Um, Also, we can call it the Mage Rebellion, whatever. There are lots of names, but it officially broke out in 940 Dragon when the Rebel Mages and the Rebel Templars voted to secede from the Chantry. Obviously, this all came to a head after the incident in Kirkwall with Anders and after many, many, many years of oppression and tensions. So I don't have a ton of fun facts today, but I do have a couple. So like I kind of alluded to earlier, we refer to this as the Mage Templar quote unquote war, but there are no established official recorded battles that we know of. So it is a war, but it's also... Not as much of a war as it is a skirmish. So, and then my next point is that you might think that this war was officially kicked off by Anders blowing up the Chantry in Kirkwall. And while that is definitely a major factor, that is not the official beginning of this war. And we'll get into that later. I just am really kind of 
now just realizing this, that this whole war, you know, normally when a group secedes from another group, the war is between the like original group and the group that's seceding. But here it's two groups that are like, we don't like that. We don't want to be a part of this organization, but we also don't like that the other people don't want to be a part of this organization. So we're going to fight those other people. Right. And they're both like, you would think that both of them would be fighting the Chantry and they're not, neither of them are fighting the Chantry except for that one Templar who like punches that one revered mother in, in Val Royo. Yeah. <laughs> no, this one's, it's, it's an interesting, cause I'll definitely talk about it in my section later, but yeah, you've got, you've got two splinter factions fighting each other rather than a splinter faction and a main faction. Which makes it pretty different from other civil wars that we've seen in our world. So Uh let's get into the timeline a little bit. So we're going to go all the way back to 931 Dragon, which might be earlier than, than you listeners are expecting. But in 931, the Libertarian group, they are a fraternity of enchanters, intended and voted to pull away from the Chantry entirely. This attempt fails as we never hear anything about it ever again, but we know this from when actually in a quest in Dragon Age Origins Awakening and the Starkhaven Circle is destroyed and many of those mages go to Kirkwall. I really like that quest in Awakening because Anders in Common to Wind says the Circle can't break away from the Chantry. That would be terrible and chaos. Enter our next point. Um, yeah, in 937, Dragon Anders blows up the Kirkwall Chantry. So it is ironic. Again, it shows you how much he's been corrupted by justice slash um, vengeance. Everything kind of happens and starts like barreling forward after that. In 938, Dragon, the College of Enchanters votes against succeeding seceding from the Chantry and then in 939 Dragon, there's an assassination attempt on Divine Justinia. The events of Asunder happen. In 940 Dragon, the circle in Ravain is annulled. And the official start date of the Mage Templar War happens as well. So it's it's just a chaotic 10, 9 or 10 years. Um, but let's get into basically what causes all of these things to happen. So as as you may know, just from playing the games, we see that mages have a terrible living condition in the circles. Um, throughout the games, we see more and more examples of this, and we see that their conditions just get worse and worse throughout the games. Um, we see very intimately one of the most horrific circles in all of Thetis, which is Kirkwall, and it's it's really bad there. But we also see another circle, which is the circle in Ferelden. We see that pretty intimately as well in Origins, which in canon lore is a circle that is not that bad. It's more lenient than other circles. It's one of the better ones. And we see mages led by Uldred who are attempting to overthrow the Templars all the way back to 930. So even in circles where it's not that bad, It's still pretty bad. Um, And as we know, because of Kirkwall, Meredith's leadership, it just, she becomes more and more unhinged and more and more strict and cruel throughout the 930s. And so 
I imagine that that's that's not just happening there. As the world gets more chaotic, the other um, Templar Knight Captains and Knight Commanders are also probably going to be more strict throughout Thetis. Yeah, I mean, I would have really liked to have gotten uh, like a broader picture across all the other circles, uh, especially in the events and the aftermath of uh, Dragon Age Origins at the Ferelden Circle. I we don't really get a whole lot, even from the extra external sources, what happened after the warden does whatever the warden does there. So that would have been a really great, either more fodder for the fire or something else. Just m- another layer to this uh, conflict would have been, it would have been nice. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, Bioware is not great about following up on the things that they uh, give to us in games. So keep that in mind when news about Dragon Age Dreadwolf starts coming out, everyone. But uh, the big topic, I think, in terms of background and context leading up to this war is what happens in Kirkwall. So as we know from the events of DA2, Anders bombs the Chantry. In an attempt to make something happen in this war, in this conflict, it's not a war at this time, but he's very frustrated by the lack of people taking sides, and he is obviously upset people don't stand up for mages, but I think he's more upset that so many people seem to be like in the middle, riding the fence between both sides, especially Grand Cleric Elthina, who he deems as someone who has the power to change things, whether or not she saw it that way. That's what Anders thought. So he takes action into his own hands, as we know, um, and we know from Codex entries and other Uh, media that the bomb that took out the Chantry also rained deadly debris down on over half of Kirkwall. And so Meredith then calls the right of annulment in response. And again, if you've played Dragon Age 2, you get to decide the rest of the story. So that's kind of all we're going to say about that um, because you can go listen to our Anders episode if you want to know exactly how that happens and all of that, which Psyche is also a guest on. So this, the thing that's interesting to me about Anders Bomb is that this is not the only thing or even the primary thing that sets off the war between the mages and Templars. It's one thing for sure. And it's an important thing as well, but it's really not the last domino that falls. I think a lot of people think, okay, well, it's Anders Bomb and then the war happens. And that's absolutely not true at all. There is so much that happens, especially in the Book of Sunder, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but throughout Thetis that really affects what happens next. So, and another part of that is that the news from Escaping Mages quickly spread to other circles. So they're talking about it. It gets out everywhere. And they are outraged. The mages are outraged that Kirkwall's Templars, Meredith specifically, would invoke the right of annulment to justify basically the extermination of an entire circle for the crimes of one apostate who never even was part of that circle to begin with. So 
a lot of circles revolted. A lot of people protested. Others were very close to doing so. In response, the Templar order as a whole begins to crack down and they further restrict mage freedoms in an attempt to kind of stop the protests. The book Asunder gives us a picture of the tensions between the mages and the Templars and the intermage Templars post Anders. And we get a deep dive into how the College of Enchanters really rebels and secedes from the Chantry in the first place. So we're going to get into that now. So tensions at the White Spire, which is the circle in Val Rio, are very high because of what Anders has done, but also because there are several mysterious murders that have been happening at the hands of Cole. So the Seekers are called in. And Divine Justinia at the same time sends Wynn to rescue her friend Faramond. And he's the one that has just discovered the cure to the Rite of Tranquility. So Wynn goes, she takes a bunch of people with her. They discover he has indeed found the cure and they bring it back and send the information to the Divine in a way that guarantees the other mages will also hear about it. You can read the book to get the details. But Divine Justinia then calls a conclave. This is not the conclave right before Inquisition. This is another conclave. Lord Seeker Lambert, of course, is there and he's pissed. 11 of the 15 first enchanters, they do arrive and they arrive in time to vote in the conclave. And so Fiona is kind of there seeking to separate the circle from the chantry. And before the vote could even happen, the meeting was interrupted by Lambert, who tells everyone that Faramon's been murdered. And so he's disbanding this meeting and they're not allowed to do anything. So they kind of know something's up. They're trying, like Lambert's trying to frame them, all this kind of stuff. And they refuse to back down. They refuse to not proceed with the vote. They're like, no, we're going to do this. And so Lambert and his fellow seekers and Templars, they attack. And that it kind of ends in complete chaos. It's not a great situation. But this still is not the beginning of the Mage Templar War. So at first, the mages fight in defense, but when a Templar kills a mage who tried to surrender, they begin attacking outright. Several of the first enchanters were killed, many imprisoned. During these conflicts, when Evangeline and Shale, they destroy the phylacteries that are in the White Spire vault, including those of the surviving first enchanters, while Liliana led those who were imprisoned to safety. By the time Lambert returned to the White Spire, most of the Templars had been killed. So that's kind of how they're able to um, escape from the circles is that so many phylacteries were destroyed. And because of all of this, the surviving first enchanters and Fiona retreat to a fortress in the area called Andoral's Reach, which is technically a fortress in Tevinter, or at least on the border between Tevinter and Orlais. It's very close in that northwest area of Orlais. And of course, it's named after an old god, the old god Andoral. And so when word gets out that the first enchanters have retreated there, hundreds of other mages who are fleeing also go as well from throughout Thetis. So they stay there and that's where they're located even up until the beginning of Inquisition. I just have one question. 
and it if it has too much to do with the thunder we can pause but what authority does lord secret lambert have to dissolve a conclave called by the divine that's a great question in the book um there's not really they talk about it briefly i think but there's not really like He's the head of the Seekers. Technically, yes, the Seekers are subservient to the Chantry, but it's a very gray area in terms of, like, who you report to. So, like, he's the head of the Seekers, and he can just take his ball and go home, which is basically what he tried to do. So, I I think it's a gray area, personally. It just seems like he's full of crap. I mean, he is. We've established that. That's, like, canon for this podcast, I thought. It's sacred (laughs) text. (laughs) Exactly. That's our Bible. (laughs) Um, But I'm not even still, I still have more things to talk about before we get to the official kickoff of this war. So then last thing before we do get into that is the circle in Ravain. So the Seekers had sent out multiple groups of them to put down any kind of tensions, right? And they were sent to Ravain in 940 Dragon to investigate the circle and fix any issues. Well, um, according to them, there were a lot of issues. And so they find that the female mages of this circle were being trained in the ancient Ravaini tradition of fortune telling or being quote unquote seers, which is against Chantry teaching, apparently. Um, with this, and in addition to Ravain's generally more lax attitude toward magic in general, the Seekers decided we're just going to annul this circle entirely. A battle ensued, lots of people died, and then the right of annulment was invoked. So, as a reminder, annulment is when an entire circle is made tranquil. So, I have a quote from the Codex titled The Annulment at Daresmid, which is the circle in Ravain. And so, Um, this person who um, kind of is the author of this codex, it's like a journal entry, said this. The Chantry sent seekers across the bay from Aisley to investigate. They found us mixing freely with our families, training female mages in the traditions of the seers, and denounced us as apostates. They brought with them a small army of Templars. We fought, and we might have won, but they invoked the right of annulment with all the unrelenting brutality that allowed. It is their right to put screaming apprentices to the sword, burn our tainted libraries, crush irreplaceable artifacts under their heels, and tear down the very walls of our home. No mage has the right to disagree. We of the Daresmood Circle wait now, behind barricades. I've sent word to our brother and sister mages of this outrage. When they break through, we will not die alone, end quote. That is one of the last things that happens before the official kind of declarations of war. So um, y'all can kind of give any thoughts you have about that. But afterwards, we'll go to our mid-break. Um, I can see how this definitely kicks this thing off. I mean, swap a couple of words out for uh, Nazi and Jew. And like, that's that there's your real world connection right there. I mean, um, to, to hit back so harshly against a group of people that are tangentially related to the whole thing is, is, is wrong. There's no real other way to put that. 
And I think that it just shows like at this point by 940 Dragon, which I am now dubbing the 2020 of Thetis. 940 Dragon. In that way too much happens in that year alone for it to be possible. It just seems like in 940 Dragon how separated and of their own volition the Seekers and Templars feel in that in that like the Chantry sends them to this and I doubt that Divine Justinia sent them there and said enact the rite of annulment and like this is where it kind of gets crazy in the lore for me because I don't I don't really understand how the rite of annulment works and maybe this just goes to Bioware writing and not remembering origins and wanting us to forget things that happen in origins but Gregor says that he is waiting from the night for the rite of annulment from uh Denerim. That implies that the right and annulment has to be given by a cleric. Now I get Meredith. Meredith invokes it in some kind of emergency power, but I really doubt that Justinia is that stupid to say, yeah, go do the right of annulment when we're dealing with all of this tension that's going on. So I think part of it could be, and we don't know for sure how this even works, but we know technically that there is a circle in Denerim, or at least there was at some point in time. Again, we don't have information. Um, but I wonder if the circle in Lake Callanhad is kind of like subservient to the bigger circle in Ferelden. Mm -hmm. And so he has to get permission from another like knight captain or knight commander. I don't know. Again, we don't know how it works. So that's just speculation, but I could understand that. That would make sense to me personally. Is there another circle in Dinnerum? I thought the only one was the Lake Callanhead circle. There have been other ones in Ferelden, but I guess I'm not for sure when and where they have like been um, over the yeah. years and yeah, because I'm just remembering the quest in Origins, or it's not really a quest, but like when you go to the Chantry and you're turning in those artifacts, there are the two Templars like guarding the doors that won't let you in. Okay, so the one in Denerim, though, was destroyed in 387 Towers, according to the wiki. There is also supposedly one in the Waking Sea, Banorn, according um, also to the wiki. I'm not sure about that though because it doesn't tell me anything else and then there's the the big one in Callanhead. so i don't know it's definitely a gray area regardless so right and it's i think it's also just a general kind of trying to understand the way the system works in that like the way it's presented to us in origins is vastly different than what is presented to us in dragon age 2 and dragon age inquisition because I thought in a lot of ways that the Templars were like assigned to towns, like they were appointed to towns, but in reality, in the lore, they're appointed to a circle. And then mm -hmm. they go out into towns to other chantries to like investigate and keep things like that. But wouldn't that be so much better if they were appointed to towns? And then like, yeah. I just feel like it would be a better system. I mean, you know, not keeping the mages in a prison would also have been a better system. So there's there's a lot Fair. that we could improve on. Right. Yeah. And any like, Anything that we do is an improvement, pretty much, other than just like straight genocide. So there's that. Yeah. But it, it's just like a proven model that like if you are a 
person that's appointed to like a community and you live in that community and you interact with that community, you're going to have an easier time interacting with them because slowly and surely you will become a known personality in that community and some semblance of trust, maybe not full trust, but at least some semblance of that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, I think now is a great time to go to our mid-break. Ah, Hawk stepped in the poopy. I love you. Want a sandwich? All this for me. No, I didn't get Alexius anything. Send him a fruit basket. Everyone loves those. Well, welcome to the middle of the show where we uh, talk about all things about the podcast, but not the lore of Dragon Age. And it's here where we thank our patrons. So thank you so much to our patrons. A special thank you to our first patrons, Genesis and Lisa M., a special thank you to our Divine Tier patron, Kit. And a very special thank you to our one and only Nug King, Lewis H. And you can also join us on Patreon. If you sign up at that first Enchanter tier, you can come and join us on a future episode of the show. Uh, or on a patron chat at the end of the month. And so you can do that there and it'll be a great time. Uh, you can also support us by leaving us ratings or reviews on Spotify and Apple. You can leave us a five-star review and some words on Apple, and we'll read it out on a future episode of the show. You can also leave us individual comments on Spotify, and with if they're kind, we will read them out on a future episode of the show. And so we do have a comment to come. Uh, Shelby, do we know which episode this came from? Yeah, this one's from the expulsion of the Grey Wardens from Ferelden. Yeah, so this is from the that episode of basically the events that we relive in Soldier's Peak DLC. And so this is from Charles C. He s- says, longtime listener, first time commenter, go Wardens. And so, yeah, go Wardens. Wardens for the win. Uh, if you want to come and hang out with us, if you want to talk to us more, if you want to just talk about Dragon Age or any kind of video game or anything on the internet, you can come and join us on the Discord. Uh, you can find that link in the episode description or on our website, cupspodcasting.com. And you can come hang out with us and talk to us. And it's one of my favorite places on the internet. And I think that's all I have for the middle of the show. You're looking for titsicles. Oh, that's good. Yes, and it's a real nice night for an evening. Um... (laughs) You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. All right, well, let's get back to it. So I guess the big question is, how do we get from mages gathering into Venter to mages and Templars fighting each other throughout the hinterlands, right? Well, we know some information about that. About a month after the Battle of the White Spire, a vote for independence was once again proposed by Grand Enchanter Fiona. The mages were represented in this conclave by their fraternities because most first enchanters were either killed or imprisoned. The Loyalist group insisted on submitting to the Chantry, arguing that they couldn't defeat the Templars, which an argument, this argument most of the smaller fraternities chose to side with. The larger fraternities, like the Libertarians and the Equitarians, voted to fight, 
which won them the vote because they're larger. And they argued that submission to the Chantry would basically get harsher conditions for all the rest of the circle's mages. So while this vote does pass, it does so by a very, very slim margin. The other half of the mages who voted against secession were soon forced to fight or join the rebel mages, most united under Vivian, and their goal was to reinstate the circles and end the war. So there's another group as well. They're called the Isolationist Mages, and true to their name, they chose to go into hiding rather than fight. So that's kind of how they officially secede from the Chantry and Templar oversight. And at the same time, of course, Lord Seeker Lambert, he's not done. He's back. He has also, at the same time, declared the Navarran Accords, which had established the Chantry, the Circles, the Templars, the Seekers, and kind of the system. He declares them to be null and void. And so the Seekers and the Templars have separated from the Chantry as well. Lord Seeker Lambert then disappears um, to everyone. Like, no one knows where he's at. We know, however, that he's dead, thankfully, killed by Cole. Um, And so, again, Austin and 940 Dragon, all of the circles have separated from the Chantry. And there are some Seekers who were still loyal to the Chantry and the Divine, namely Cassandra, but there were some others, as well as several Templars, too. Many and most of them did rebel and leave the Chantry to hunt and fight mages on their own terms. Um There were loyalist mages and Templars, like especially in the city of Hasmal. They elected to basically become a refuge from the war instead of participating in it. And many other mages and Templars who didn't want any part of this war decided to go join the Grey Wardens, who offered amnesty to any and all refugees on the condition, of course, that they would take the joining. Um, many refugees from the Hosburgh Circle of Magi elected to travel to Weishaupt to take this offer up. And we also know that the Ferelden monarchy also offered rebel mages sanctuary in Redcliffe. Again, as we know, Templars pursued them specifically, which is how we get to so much fighting in the hinterlands. Let's just assume and go with what most people do, which is in some way, Alistair is king. Whether he's married to the warden, he's king by himself, or he's married to Anora and they're joint ru- ruling together. That's most, mo- in most people's world state, Alistair is king. Does he know that Fiona is his mother? Is that why he does this? He doesn't know. Um, at least as far as I'm aware, he doesn't know. And so I don't think he does this because of her. And also, I think. I feel like I'm pulling this out of nowhere, but I feel like from somewhere this offering them sanctuary in Redcliffe was actually Bantigan's idea and not Alistair's. If I remember right, that's that's kind of what it was. Tegan Tegan was the one who was like, okay, look, you guys can come in and and stay. I I have no idea why, but and then he I think he petitions Alistair or whoever's on the throne for assistance in the matter. And then the events of inquisition happen and and yeah and i think fiona took great pains to make sure that alistair never knew uh, she was his birth mother 
Yes. Yeah. And like, that's a specific thing that she didn't want him to know, at least in, in the books, it's kind of different because she makes a comment, I think in Inquisition, I can't remember exactly, but um, because Tegan is, is ban of Redcliffe or Arl of Redcliffe at this time. It's interesting to me and it being Tegan's idea makes sense, especially if Connor is alive and is with the rebel mages. I, it's not that we often think of Alistair as anti-mage, but I also don't see him risking a political move like that of harboring rebel mages and risking either the Chantry or these rogue Templars coming in. Um, because if there's one thing Alistair hates more than the misuse of magic, it's the misuse of Templar power. Yeah, that's fair. So let's get into Inquisition a little bit. Um, Divine Justinia, basically at the same time as Lord Seeker Lambert dies and the circles of Magi are like actively rebelling and leaving all of this. She sends Cassandra and Liliana to track down Hawk and the hero of Ferelden, respectively. So obviously Cassandra is assigned to Hawk. Liliana is assigned to the hero of Ferelden because they have a personal connection. And their goal is to start the Inquisition and find someone to run it. In 941, Dragon Divine Justinia calls for a peace summit, another conclave, to be held at the Temple of Sacred Ash. The leaders of both factions, the mages and the Templars slash seekers, they both fear the possibility of a trap and that so they send representatives in their place. And as we know, peace does not happen because of Corypheus's attack. So I have a quote from the Conclave Codex entry, which is actually an excerpt from Divine Justinia V's journal, and this is written in 941. It has been a year of little more than chaos. Yes, the mages voted to dissolve the Circle of Magi, but I will point out, this vote came only after increased restrictions were placed on them following the unfortunate events in Kirkwall. What other choice did they have? Yes, the Templar Order abandoned their duties and elected to pursue the mages to bring them back in line. But after a thousand years in which their sole role was the mages' keepers, what else could one expect? They envisioned the war over quickly, a single battle that would see the mages' resolve crumble, after which they would meekly return to confinement. That did not happen. This conflict could drag on forever, with advantage on neither side. Both Templars and Mages see this, and thus they have agreed to come to the Conclave. This is our chance. Words need to be said which is, have not been said. A compromise must be reached because there is no other choice. I believe this with all my heart. I am not without fault in all this. Perhaps I've pushed too hard for reform or not hard enough. The Maker has seen fit to give me another chance. I will not squander it. So this is Divine Justinia's, like one of her final journal entries, because as we know, she dies. Um, and so it's kind of sad to me that she writes this and is like, I'm not going to squander this chance to, you know, find peace in Thetis. And then, of course, she's she's assassinated um, because I think that even though she's made a lot of mistakes, I think she's genuine in this kind of like almost repentance of her past inaction and wanting to do better for the future. So I think it it is sad that she's not able to kind of do that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's just the tragedy of like what we see all the time of like 
oh, if only I had acted sooner. Cullen, oh, if only I had stood up to Meredith sooner. You know, like even Hawk and Varric, if only we had seen Anders sooner in Justinia, like Elthina, like if only you had stepped in and said something or done something, done anything other than trying to walk this middle line and placate. But I now have a, I need to put on my tinfoil hat for a little bit. We know that the veil is weakened by tragedy, um, suffering and tragedy and those emotions draw v- demons to the veil and weaken the veil in areas. Corypheus's goal is to tear down the heavens. We always kind of theorize where Anders gets the idea for this bomb. And I've postulated the theory that I think Meredith might give it to him. But one thing that I think I've forgotten is that Anders is a Grey Warden. This idea could have been communicated to him through the taint within him from Corypheus. All of these things, all of these conclaves failing and coming up again could just be Corypheus trying to push this conflict so there is a point where he can create enough tragedy and carnage to rip down the veil. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Like, truly, that makes... It's so out there that it's come back around to making sense. Yeah, I was, because I was Corypheus, almost, And then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, Corypheus is imprisoned underneath Kirkwall. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, it, it might have some semblance of truth to it. Which would which would lend the theory that Solus wakes up a lot sooner than he's letting on. Okay, uh, I'm stopping you right there because we I'm do just not saying, have time to talk about Solus today. Just saying, that man's a liar. All right. Okay, moving on. So, um, the end of the war. How does it end? Well. We kind of resolve it ourselves in Inquisition. Unlike a traditional war, there aren't any official battles. And so because of that, and because you can see so much of it in the game, I'm going to kind of skip over this part a little bit. But, you know, go replay the game if you're interested. Basically, if you choose the mages or the Templars, like that's the resolution. But the aftermath is, you know, basically the forces of whichever faction was not helped by the Inquisition, they become part of Corypheus's army um, as either the Red Templars or a bunch of the mages end up joining or being forced to join rather the Venatori. Um, and that kind of helps Corypheus. And then like you, you get to fight against him, as you know. Um, so that's kind of how this war ends. Normally in these episodes, we would go into, you know, kind of our thoughts about this war or this event, but I'm actually going to turn it over to Psych now because we're going to transition and talk about um, how this kind of oppression and war and all the stuff compares to modern day history. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to try to go through it fairly quickly, um, but please stop me if you have any questions. So um, first, much of the information I'm pulling comes from uh, Mike Duncan's History of Rome and his Revolution's Educational Podcasts. Check them out if you have the opportunity. They are concise. They are condensed until he gets to the Russians, but that it's the Russians. <laughs> so anyway, let's get let's get into this. Uh, 
the broad scope of where revolution begins is the infrastructure that needs to be overthrown. Uh, much like the Visigoths taking Rome, the slaves of Haiti uh, fighting for freedom, and the Russians overthrowing the Tsars. Uh, for our purposes, this is a little bit harder because the Mage Templar tension crosses nationalities um, and isn't really the fault of any one ruler or leader. It's a group effort. In this, we have what is kind of known as an Ancien regime. And Ancien, is, it just means old or the previous uh, thing. It doesn't necessarily have to have meant ancient. It's uh, There's a specific word for a word that sounds like another i forget what it is but that's what that is. that's what that means it doesn't really fit because the chantry is not overthrown in fact uh, none of the political powers for the mage templar war are overthrown in fact you're doing everything you can to reinstate the chantry um but at the time of the breakout of the war it's whoever was in put in power at denarum uh, or lays in the midst of their own civil war uh, you've got old King Marcus still in control of Navarra. Uh, Tevinter is allowing their uh, Venatori far-right people doing stuff. And then Kirkwall is a flaming mess. <laughs> uh, which kind of still holds after uh, DAI, uh, say for Orlay and Kirkwall. Um, so in this, it's not much of a revolution, but I'm working with what I've got here to kind of bridge the gap here. So we have to ask ourselves what political, economic, and social structures the Chantry is supposed to uphold and provide. Um, admittedly, most of that is whatever the ruler of that particular area is doing for the political and economics and, and everything. The Chantry, for the most part, other than uh, assisting uh, the needy and, and whatever else the they're calling comes to is to control the mages and that in that has granted them massive political and social power um, basically it's the we will keep the monsters away from you humble subjects all you must do is turn them in um, which goes a long way with your average citizen the person who doesn't have to worry about rampant demons or fireballs is a farmer making food the carpenter building a home and taxpayers paying their taxes like if i don't have to worry about not dying today today's great the funny thing about a revolution is it doesn't necessarily have to happen um as we said even earlier if the chantry had done literally anything else than imprisonment for mages uh this may not have needed to happen uh and they also enable and support the templars as larger-than-life guards against the embodiment of evil. And it's not hard to see how that worldview corrupts and did corrupt the Templars and the Seekers. When you're, the moment you stop viewing those who are supposed to, you're supposed to protect as human beings, all bets are off. Um, so, now we come into the second part. We've got our infrastructure, which is not the best. Now you need poor leadership. Mike Duncan classifies this as the corollary to the great man of history clause, the great idiot theory. As often as great men and women make history, so do the stubborn, the ignorant, and the idiotic. Now, the case can be made here basically for 
almost any divine, but this broke out under Divine Justinia V. And it's her lack of urgency in the matter regarding the treatment of mages before and after the Kirkwall event and the inability to forestall the promotion of Lord Seeker Lambert creates this perfect storm to fester. Ultimately, she becomes another do-nothing divine and a very long list of divines. Not trying to call her an idiot or anything. It's just the name of the theory. Um, she did try to fix it, and those efforts were stymied by an outside influence, which is very rarely heard of in a revolution. I, like I said earlier, this was a group effort. Uh, you have a rotating chair of Viscounts in Kirkwall. That helps Anders out immensely, whether or not we recognize it as players or not. Um, or even he recognized it, really. Uh, Dinnerum is still rebuilding after the Blight. Orle is in the middle of a civil war and subjugating elves. Um, so no one's really paying attention to the tensions between mages and Templars. And complacency happens. You get used to the fact that, well, they're mages and Templars. It's the Hotfields and the McCoys. They're always going to be fighting. That's just the way of things. So now we have to introduce some elements of disequilibrium. And really, it comes from our Templars and our Seekers who begin acting out, either covertly or in public, defiance to the divine. Uh, Meredith's obstruction of elections for a new Viscount and Lambert's ascension over the divine's objections are clearly counted towards that. And that what that did is bring in an element of inflexibility of the Chantry. Now you've got the Chantry not being able to work with itself or its own parties. And so now they're in a gridlock and that makes them not able to really handle any changes from the mage side of the equation. Thus, any of the smallest infractions is met with a draconian response because that's who's in charge. It's how this is going to roll. Um, I was just going to say that like, if anything, the prelude to the mage Templar war shows how little power the chantry actually has that yeah. they can't they can't do anything like they think they have control over the templars because they control the supply of lyrium but lo and behold orzammar will sell lyrium to anyone and mm -hmm. here we are um yeah that's yes um so from there, that's kind of a, you, for the mages, like, yes, you have, you have a, the occasional mage or even group of mages running away from their circles. Um, but for the most part, for a like broad scale, we don't have big issues. Uh, Fiona is voted in as the grand enchanter in the late, you know, as, when she is. Um, but other than during the events of Asunder, she doesn't do much of anything to disrupt the current state of affairs. Um, most of the time, most mages, they just want to get to the next day without getting a sword in their back or being made tranquil. Except for Taventer, who doesn't have to worry about that. So, we have the Templars, the Seekers, the Mothers, and the Circles. They make up what is, uh, quotations here, the ruling class of the Chantry. Um, but the circles are considered out of favor. And this is how this stuff kind of gets broiling real fast. You have a party out of favor trying to make reformation for themselves, whereas the things in charge 
they don't want more power to be given to people who don't have that power um for and to kind of bring this to like a real full circle this can be seen from king charles the first reign of england during their civil war all the way up through the russians anyone in power is always going to be looking to keep it while making sure no one else gets any more of it this is so relevant to like right now with the american government like they literally just uh, met, made a compromise on the debt ceiling and what did they do to make that compromise they sacrificed student loan relief like they're always going systems are always going to look to have someone subjugated because the subjugated large population are the ones that keep the wheels of the system turning yes so we have an inflexible and ineffective system that cannot handle innovation that supports out of favor party now let's shock it and so for thetis that is the kirkwall bombing and the annulment of the Adverani circle um those events lock our parties into into confrontation um it's not quite set in stone that it must happen we've seen countless cases where even at this 11th hour brink things turn away and we we don't go into a full revolution but we don't talk about those events because they're not quite as noteworthy as our revolution we love to talk about those um and so for our real world that's we have a couple none of them not some of them as bombastic as blowing up half a city um so like when king charles tried to impart religious uniformity by imposing the anglican book of prayer on the scots which kicked off the bishop's war um when controller general cologne told king louis the 16th that france was broke as a joke could not pay their bills anymore um when king louis the uh 18th died that allowed king charles the 10th to take the throne and when czar nicholas ii bungled not one but two wars so badly that even his closest allies figured it was time all right we gotta send them off the next element our final ingredient is the trigger the flashpoint of no return and that's the that that is the finding out that the right of tranquility can be undone and the attack by the templars on the mages while trying to hold a san you know sanctioned meeting done that's um it's should be noted that triggers are typically not planned it's usually noted in hindsight that okay this was our moment um th these are moments where it the things are capitalized by the forces at play in the revolution to create the rest of it um and so like we we talk about some of the times like in the revolution you have You've, you've got competing ideas for what the revolution should do across both sides. And that's what the loyalists kind of represent is the other side, even within it. I'm surprised to see the loyalists staying here at this point. Normally you would see something like as a counter-revolution idea as loyalists later down the line. But in the immediate aftermath most people are within the revolutionary camp are like go it's time 
to me at least, any return to the Chantry is going to mean chains, tranquility, and or death. Like they they've dim the Templars and the Chantry have demonstrated that we're okay with just murdering you, regardless if you're surrendering, regardless if you are a, a, a circle in good standing. Like this at this point, they are just goose stepping down Main Street. Right. Which, you know, go back to my kind of theory earlier about Alistair and his decision to, if it is his decision or if it's Bantigan's decision to house the mages in Redcliffe. This kind of makes sense now to me, because if you think about it, the rulers of Thetis have to know this is a bad idea. I mean, history has shown that they need mages. Their mm-hmm. society needs magic, especially if a blight rolls out. They, oh, yeah. I mean, the second blight alone proves that mages can be the difference between, you know, survival and extinction in a blight. And so they have to know this, which is why, you know, Celine offers um, Vivian's, like, basically sanctuary in the Imperial Court. And so Alistair offering the mages sanctuary in Ferelden makes sense then because he has to know at some point, like, you all are done. Like this, we can't eradicate all mages. Like, yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, especially, especially because we don't have, we, we just don't have a society like, like the mages within our own to draw a parallel to. Of no, no, we absolutely one hundred percent need you to like function as a society. I mean, maybe nowadays it'd be IT, but. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so for our, like pulling from our examples earlier, uh, the triggers for the English civil war was, uh, King Charles, the first personal attempt to arrest five members of parliament, which was a gross overreach between the powers of parliament and the monarchy. Like you just, you just don't do that. And that threw the whole parliament into revolt trigger for the French revolution was, uh, King Louis XVI's firing of controller general Jacques Necker. Which was three days before Bastille Day. A lot of people say Bastille Day's the actual event. This is what allowed Bastille Day to happen. Uh, the Revolution of 1830 was triggered by King Charles X's decree of the Four Ordinances, one of which was the abolishment of uh, basically journalism. You can only print what I tell you. None of the Parisians were going to allow that to fly. And then for old Nicky, uh, he had two. One was 1905, which was the was Bloody Sunday, and in 1917, which was uh, wish I was kidding here. Uh, it was just finally a nice day in Russia after a very hard winter. They were outside. It was great to be outside. As International Women's Day, and then they just revolted. <laughs> they got that spring fever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like you should really like if out of any of them, the 1917 Russian Revolution, just go read it because it's hilarious. So I see the like the final vote to leave the Chantry is kind of a move of like formality for both parties. Effectively, they already have. This is just putting it to paper. Mages don't want to be controlled by the Chantry. They don't want to be in their cages anymore and the templars are so full of themselves so arrogant they're defenders of the public 
mindset that the chantry is standing in the way of doing the job. So, like, yeah, they they were already both done. Um, so it's impossible to say what would happen next because we don't have any big wars between them. Um, and outside influence, Corypheus and the Inquisition uh, start to manipulate kind of both parties for their own good. And I mean, that just doesn't happen uh, with a real one. It uh, There's no mythic embodiment of evil or unassuming unknown with a grand destiny walking around. Like that's just, it doesn't happen. But one of the things I did want to talk about was lastly, uh, what we have is known as the entropy of victory in a revolution. Uh, once the revolution has started and you have knocked off the the monarch or whoever it was that united you all to start the revolution, uh, those forces inside it, they are only united in the remove the ruler, but they have their own parties and agendas, and those immediately turn on each other to start deciding what was the revolution about. You have an stretches the, the spectrum from people who just want to return to normalcy to full-on let's like burn it down start over all of those ideas for dragon age um that is the backdrop of the trespasser dlc as our orlesian and ferelden allies turn on the inquisition after we get the chantry back up and running for them not quite the same as like Cromwell's takeover of the English government or whatever happened with the Russians, but it works here for us. I really think like a good comparison here, and I think this is kind of, it's not a perfect analogy, but the Mage Templar War, the events of Inquisition, or the World War One of Thetis. Mm. And the, um, what's it, the Exalted Council is the Treaty of Versailles. And we're about to walk into a 1930s Europe. Um, so instead of a side character um, discussion today, we are going to answer a different question. Um, sometimes at the end of our like history episodes, I'll, I'll ask if you thought that this was effective, especially in the exalted marches. I asked if um, we thought that these were effective, but instead I kind of want to look at a different, look at it from a different take. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, what do you think is the biggest mistake of the Mage Templar War and why? I can go first. Yeah, go for it. Um, it is the annulment of the Ravain Circle. Um, for me, I think if that had not happened, I think tensions would have been high. But Kirkwall itself, while dr tragic and while dramatic could be placed as like okay here's this mage it was an isolated incident like where and Elthina or not Elthina but De Justinia could have made some efforts to be like we're going to investigate this we're going to try to rebuild this but like you could play off Kirkwall as an isolated incident of a corrupted knight commander and try to appease things but once they make this decision to annul the circle in Ravain for practicing a cultural practice and not really doing anything wrong, that that is the point of no return for me. And I know that it's the discover of the right of tranquility, but I think it's important to know that at that point, the circles don't know that the seekers have known this all along. Mm 
Um, I think if that fact had been gotten out um, in Asunder, the war would have, like, it would have been a lot worse. If the fact that it had gotten out, the Seekers knew all along that this was reversible. Um, I think that would have gone. But I stand by the Ravane Circle is the biggest mistake that the Seekers make. Yeah, I, I'm gonna have to agree because like his he's right, you can you can pass off the Kirkwell incident as a, a lone mage acting by themselves and also a corrupt, a singular corrupt knight commander. And you know, her forces they were just following orders, quotes, but that was just Kirkwall. But the moment the Templars decided to try to implement a draconian response across Thetis and specifically against Ravane, that showed that the whole, that the order as a whole could not be trusted and could not be res- uh, uh, resolved with. Um, it's funny that you guys agree because I disagree. I think that that is a, a major mistake. Don't get me wrong, but I tend to place the blame at the feet of the Chantry because I think that all of this could have been avoided systemically if the Chantry had just not made two assumptions. And these two assumptions are that number one, that there's always going to be conflict between the mages and the Templars and the mages are just, they're always going to deal with it. And number two, they assume that the Seekers and Templars would never rebel against them. If they had not made those assumptions, then they would have created a system that had more checks and balances on the Templars and the Seekers as well. So to me, I think it's on on the Chantry. Absolutely agree that um, annulling the circle in Ravain is a huge mistake. Don't want to downplay that at all. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the, the blame and the fault lays with the Chantry, because they're the ones that set the system up. Yeah, um, I was. I would say I, I. I was reading the question kind of literally as the like the setup for the Mage Templar War as as relations for mages and Templars overall. Absolutely, sure. The fault lies with the Chantry and their uh, from the get go response of the way magic needs to serve man. And thus, if you are a mage, well, guess what? You get to spend the rest of your life in this little eight by 10 cell and everyone's going to hate you, except maybe your own fellow mages. Because mm. uh, we yeah, get absolutely. A, a, we definitely get like a, a look even well before during um, uh, the Stolen Throne. Or no, sorry, the calling. When Duncan's in the... Uh, the, the tower and he just notices mm-hmm. a random encounter between two mages who are walking and a couple templars and the templars just hate them outright for no other reason other than they exist mm-hmm. that is it's a microcosm event that defines their macrocosm the templars really, have, yeah. yeah i really want to go back and I know that we do this a little bit, but I want to go back to the first Inquisition. And I want to know, I want to be in a room where they're sitting there and they create the Seekers and the Chantry, basically. And because obviously something like that doesn't happen without something dramatic. And I know that there's a lot going on with the first Inquisition and 
what's happening with that. But I just wanted to be there because I guarantee what they set up is not what we see in the Dragon Age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely if uh, I'm blanking as the first Inquisitor, if he had survived outside of that DLC and gone on to see what Chantry, the Seekers, and the Mages had all become, a Mirrodin, yes. If he had been allowed outside of that moment and just didn't die outright, uh, he did. Uh, I have a feeling he did have the same reaction as I think any of us think a founding father would think as our current system. I was just going to say that, like, the fact that then they basically spread lies about him and erase his race and erase his identity as a mage. Um, and so if he had survived, that would have been a lot harder to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess that's where we can kind of leave it for this evening. Psych, thank you so much for coming on and making all these comparisons to uh, to modern history, for sure. That was so interesting. Yeah, no, I, I like I started listening to that podcast and it really like got my interest. I mean, I've always loved history, but that one, re- like he has a great way of telling that those stories. So uh, seriously, it's it's a long form, but it's great. Um, and so it was great to come on and, and talk about some of this stuff and how it applies to a game that we all love and see see the parallels that must have been happening in the writer's room when the game was being created like okay well what can we do here and what's different and what would be maybe new and interesting and all that i'm gonna definitely put it on my list say it'll be helpful just in my life in general but also for where we're going with the assassin's creed lore cast and adding a little expansion in background on what's happening well do you want to tell us where we can find you and what's you got going on um, absolutely um so as, as i said earlier i am co-host on the mcu Lorecast, where we take an mcu movie uh discuss its movie analysis and then i bring in the comic book origins to a lot of the stuff and then i'm also a player on the mass effect blue shift podcast um I play a Citadel security agent and we solve crime on the Citadel. Um, at the time of this recording, we'll have just dropped part three of our bombing run case. So that's been a lot of fun. And then uh, today I just made the announcement that I've been writing and producing an Avengers audio drama. And that will go out. The very first episode of that will go out in September to coincide with the 60th anniversary of that comic book line. That's awesome, Psych. What is the name of that new show? Um, it's the Avengers audio drama. Um, it's oh, uh, with the it's it's outside of robots with Scyther Audio Productions. Um, they've got a fantastic like group of voice uh, voice actors. I also have pulled some of my own friends, like uh, our. Uh, our illustrious uh, Elizabeth Cole, she'll be voicing the Wasp. So, oh, awesome! Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's been great. It's a lot of fun. Um, I've done a lot of audio engineering, <laughs> creating kind of my own sound effect library, uh, figuring out just everything. Um, so it's been it's been a great awesome. like stretch of my skills. Cool. Well, we'll definitely have to check it out. Please. 
if that's all we got, the last thing I have is to thank our Nug King patron, Lewis H., who gets thanked at the end of every show. And thank you all for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, join our Cups Podcasting and More Discord server. It's easily the best place on the internet. You can also support us financially through our Patreon. You can find us there on patreon.com slash dragonagelorecast. The Dragon Age Lorecast is part of the Robots Radio Network. For more information about the Robots Radio Network, join the Discord server via the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed the show or learned something new today, please subscribe, leave us a review, and join the Patreon. And if you enjoyed our intro and outro music, give a big thank you to Pipe Man Studios. Thank you, Pipe Man. Thanks again for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. We'll see you next time. Vault Dwellers, join me, Jax's sassy lady Romer, Eric, and the creator Maverick as we take topics from the Fallout universe and discuss them with other diverse individuals. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow us on YouTube. You can also find us on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it using at FalloutRTD. You can send us an email using FalloutRTD at gmail.com. Join us. The conversation has already started.